This is episode 136 of the Church Venture Northwest podcast. We're continuing the 2015 Annual Enrichment Conference, The Glory of Community with Bruce Ware. This is session two, New Union with Christ. Embrace and be affected by the truths that we're going to be looking at is if the Spirit of God works in our midst to enable us uh, to, for those things to take place. So let's just pause for a moment and commit this time to the Lord. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege it is to come together as, uh, as fellow believers in Christ, as, as those who are united together in one family, one chosen people, uh, one new creation of your people who are brought together in Christ to be forever yours. And we thank you, Lord, for the privilege now as we contemplate what it means to be united with Christ and how important this is for us individually and corporately to understand this. So we commit our time now to you, Father. Be pleased to work among us by your spirit to accomplish in and through us what only you can do. And we will be quick to give you all the praise and the glory and the thanksgiving for every good thing accomplished by your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So we are the community of Christ's followers as the new people of God. And that involves a union with Christ that has taken place that we're going to be looking at this morning. The introduction uh, on the notes that you have there reads as follows. While union with Christ is true for each of us individually as believers, each one of us is united with Christ, there is also an important sense in which we are united with Christ corporately. This corporate union with Christ forms our new community as those who are united with him, now catch this, in such a way that it parallels the union of the Son with the Father. Amazing! Can you believe it? Let me read that one sentence again. We'll, we'll see this demonstrated by passages we look at in a moment. This corporate union with Christ forms our new community as those who are united with him in such a way that it parallels the union of the Son with the Father. How does our union with Christ collectively shape how we think of ourselves and one another? How should it shape our commitment to one another and affect our lives lived with one another? Well, that's what we're looking at in this hour together. And what I want to do is, is focus really in, in two portions of Scripture. There's much more, of course, as with all of this, that we could look at. But I want to take a few moments with you, first of all, to look at union with Christ in some of Paul's teaching that I think parallels what we see in John's Gospel in some very important ways. But nonetheless, they speak of it differently. John and Paul speak of it differently. Obviously, they're compatible. Uh, they they, they complement one another, but they still are different ways of speaking of this. So take a look at Paul's, some of his statements. And then in John's gospel in particular, we'll focus there and see how uh, union with Christ and our union with one another is depicted. So first of all, union with Christ in Paul. Romans 6, 1 to 11. Let me read this first and then we'll talk about it a bit together. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, 
so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from that slavery to sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives forever to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, let me make real, real quickly here three comments about this text. The first one is this. Now, this is a profound thought that you won't find in any Romans commentary out there. Chapter 6 follows chapter 5. I mean, really, do you, is there any commentary you know of where that insight is given to you? So there, there it is. Now, chapter 6 follows chapter 5. What is chapter 5 about? Especially from verse 12 and following. Our union with Adam and Christ, right? So it's very clear that Paul has been thinking in collective terms. All of us in Adam have died. All of us, by faith in Christ, in Christ are made alive. <coughs> so he's not thinking principally, individually. He's thinking principally, collectively. He's thinking of us as those who are in Christ. We who are the community of Christ's followers, who have trusted in him and hoped in him. We are the ones who are granted new life in Christ. Okay, that's, that's the frame of mind he has now as he moves into chapter 6, where he begins to talk about what it means to be in Christ. Okay, so the first observation is, yes, all of these truths in Romans 6 apply to each one of us individually. There's no doubt about that. But they're also truths that are true of all of us as the collective whole, those who are in Christ, all of the followers of Christ. Second observation is this, that for Paul, union with Christ is a union in his death and resurrection. Now, look, look just to, to see this clearly uh, in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him. Don't you love to be a Baptist? I love being a Baptist. I'm so glad in heaven everyone will be Baptists. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a Baptist to get into heaven. It just means this, that once you're there, you'll see the light, you know, and we'll all be Baptists in heaven. I mean, the, you know, to, to see the truth of what it means to be in Christ is to be buried with him in death, raised with him to newness of life. This, this is the union we have with Christ, is the one who died and rose again. The focus that Paul has of union with Christ is the one, is with the one who died and was raised. Now, the reason I stress this in part is because of this text, but also because there is a, a very significant portion of Christendom that doesn't see this in Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, the whole Eastern church that developed out of the early church fathers uh, went a direction in which union with Christ 
has much more to do with the incarnation of Christ than the death and resurrection of Christ. And this is a huge mistake to see this. Uh, what, what those early Greek fathers thought and was passed on them through in, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition that you'd find in, in uh, Russian Orthodoxy or Greek Orthodoxy or various uh, strains of that, capital O Orthodoxy, what you find there is that they understand that in the incarnation, uh, the eternal son with his divine nature had joined to it a human nature, which of course is absolutely true, but in that, humanity is joined to deity in the incarnation. So, so here you have kind of the, the divinization you know that word is one that's used in Eastern Orthodoxy, their doctrine of theosis or divinization, that the, the union takes place as Christ himself is that focal point of the union of the human and divine as the human and divine natures come together in Christ. So how do we benefit in that? By being united to Christ, we join into this divinization of the Son. His human nature joined to divine nature becomes then our passageway of our union with the divine nature through our union with Christ. And then we ask the question, how are we united to Christ in Eastern Orthodox theology? And the answer sounds a lot like Roman Catholic uh, theology at this point through the sacraments. So, so your participation in the church through grace that is mediated through the sacraments, you are united with Christ by, by which then you are divinized. Your sanctification, your glorification comes principally through the incarnate Son with hardly any emphasis then on the death and resurrection. Huge mistake. Huge mistake, because for Paul, our union with Christ, of course the incarnation had to happen. Absolutely, but the incarnation is not the focal point of our salvation. The incarnation is the necessary uh, medium by which the death and resurrection of Christ is efficacious. He had to be the God-man in order to accomplish our salvation. But as he does that in the cross, vindicated by the resurrection, that is, we know the atoning sacrifice of Christ worked because he rose from the dead. And just, just a moment on this. How, how is it a vindication that the, that the atoning work of Christ worked? Well, what is the payment for sin, according to Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is death. Well, if Christ remains in a grave dead, that means he hasn't finished paying the payment right? He's still paying it. If the payment is death and he remains in the grave dead, he's still paying. The only way it can be shown that the payment has been made in full when that payment is death is as he rises from the dead. So indeed, it is the efficacious death of Christ that worked as vindicated by his resurrection to newness of life that is the focal point of the New Testament of our union with Christ. It is in him who died and rose again. Isn't that glorious? Okay, which brings the third point. Third point for, for Romans 6 is this, that Paul understands this union with Christ in an already not yet fashion. Now, I don't know how many of you understand that language, already not yet. It, it simply means this, that there is so much 
in the fulfillment of biblical promises that are fulfilled in a manner in which some of it takes place now, that's the already, but the fullness of it awaits a future day, that's the not yet. I mean, you know, just, just so many examples of this are true. How do you answer the question, has the kingdom of Christ come? How do you answer that? Has the kingdom of Christ come? I hear a yes. I sure, I sure hope I hear a no also. I mean, have you read the paper this morning? Well, I haven't, but you, you get the point, right? I mean, does righteousness reign over the earth? Are you kidding? So, so in, indeed, you know, there's this little statement in Hebrews chapter 2, we do not yet see all things subject to him. Ha ha, but he's the one who is at the right hand of the Father, ruling over all things. We do not yet see all things subject to him referring to the Son. So there's an already not yet in, in terms of, uh, yes, we are in Christ. We, we have received already some of the benefits of that atoning death and resurrection in our lives, but we await the fullness of it. And you can see that in Romans 6. So follow me here. In, in verse 5 he says, if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be, do you see the future tense there? This is something yet to come. We shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. So here, here is Paul's point, is that right now, the already is this. Because we are united to Christ by faith, we already are in a place where his death and resurrection provide for us empowerment by which the slavery of sin is broken. The dominion of sin is ended. It cannot hold sway over a true believer in the way that it necessarily did for the unbeliever. We all, outside of Christ, are slaves to Satan, slaves to sin. We cannot but sin as unbelievers. There is no other, no other choice we can make but to sin in one way or the other. Oh yeah, we've got freedom as unbelievers. We can sin this way or that way. But we sin. But in Christ, that dominion of sin is broken. That slavery is broken. But the presence of sin remains until that day when we are resurrected. So Paul anticipates the fullness of the efficacy of Christ's atoning death and resurrection to be manifest only in our resurrection that is yet to come. So right now, we are living in this age of anticipating the fullness and experiencing some of the fruit of the fullness as sin is defeated in increasing measure, as the bondage of sin is ended in, in the lives of every believer. But we still fight sin in ways that will come to an end fully at the resurrection of Christ. Okay, so Paul, Paul's theology here of union with Christ is a union of the one who died and rose again, who decisively defeated sin. We, we enter into that defeat but we enter into it in an already not yet fashion. We just like almost everything else in the Christian life, not everything, justification. 
Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now, there's something you can't add to. That's not an already not yet statement. That is a definitive, once for all, done deal justification. But there is so much else in the Christian life that is a growing reality, the fullness of which is yet to come in this day ahead. So for all of us, this is true for the whole body of Christ. We are a people who has been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. Therefore, we as a people ought to be marked by increasing defeat of sin, increasing growth in Christ's likeness. And, and, and goodness, this ought to be at the top of our radar screens, as it were, with one another. This, you know, we talk about the weather, we talk about sports, we talk, we talk about so many things that are at best of secondary importance. At best. I won't talk about the worst of what we talk about. There's that too. But the best of what we often talk about is of secondary importance. When, when we ought to be stimulating one another to love and good deeds. We, we ought to be communicating with one another in ways that encourage us in the faith, that help us catch a renewed vision of the of the greatness of God, the goodness of his forgiveness, that the empowering presence of the Spirit in our lives and encouraging us to take that next step forward in faith and, and, uh, and seeing, seeing our, our lives with each other as lives lived to increase the faith of one another. This is how we should live because this, this, is, this is our true identity in Christ as those who have been united to Christ in his death and resurrection. May we see this lived out in greater measure. Okay, moving on. Uh, Romans 7, <coughs> verses 4 to 6. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. So Paul has in mind here that notion of the death of Christ and resurrection. To him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while you were in the flesh, the sinful passions were, which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of your body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we are bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. So here what Paul has in mind is that our union with Christ is a union by which the law that prescribed for us how we ought to live, but we could not keep it. That law which was a perfect standard of righteousness, but a law that condemned us because it would inevitably result in our disobedience to that law. That law is ended in the death of Christ. He fulfilled it all. So we die to the law as we are joined to Christ. Now, by the way, I mean, this is not in this text here, but it's in many other passages. This does not lead to antinomianism. It doesn't mean, then, that for Christian people, ah, the law is over, therefore there's no law anymore. Because it's very clear in the New Testament that the law of Moses is over, but the law of Christ is which is the, the fulfillment of the new covenant. I will write my law in your hearts. In your hearts I will write it, and, and you will not have to teach each one his neighbor, his brother, saying, know the Lord, you will all know me from the least to the greatest, that this, this 
work of the Spirit to write the law on our hearts takes the place of the external law that stood outside of us that we could not conform to and that condemned us. That is over. And what takes its place is union with Christ. We, we are united with one who now enables us to be obedient to his commandments, to be law-keeping people, as it were, uh, rather than under the, the bondage of that law and our inability to keep it. So, we, we, look again at, uh, at verse 4. Uh, we are made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that we might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. So again, the, the hopefulness in this, the, the joy of realizing that what has happened to us in Christ is union with Christ that brings empowerment. Union with Christ that brings transformation. Union with Christ that brings the possibility of bearing fruit for God that we could not do before. So ought we not promote that among one another, among ourselves in the body of Christ, to promote that Christ dependency that results in bearing fruit for God. This is one of the glorious realities of our union with Christ, divine enablement as we are in Christ. Galatians 2.20, another beautiful statement of this union with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, it's one of the places where Paul uses sarks, flesh, to mean our human, human life in, in our bodies, you know, human physical existence. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I mean, so how, how, how extensive is this idea that our life is now a life united to Christ? Answer, so extensive that Paul can say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Yet, yet he lives on. The life I live in the flesh. It's not as though he goes out of existence, but what, what he means is that the, the whole activating empowerment of his life is different. It's not the old Paul. It's now Christ at work in him to do what he could not do. Again, empowerment, enablement, transformation. These are, this, this is the hopefulness of what we realize is true uh, for those of us, all of us who are in Christ. New lives in him. And then finally, one last statement that comes, of course, at the end of Galatians 5, which is that discussion of, of the flesh and the spirit. You know, uh, uh, walk in the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, going back to verse 16. So now at the end of that discussion, we read this statement. Now to those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So again, this decisive work to bring to an end the dominance of the flesh, because we are now in Christ. We've been united to him. We belong to Christ. And of course, in this context, in Galatians 5, we've been united to Christ as the Spirit has come to indwell us. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, 
and, and so on. So indeed, the, the Christ, the, let me put it this way, uh, the presence of Christ is mediated to us by the indwelling spirit. This is the significance, as we talked about last night, of the coming of the Spirit. It brings the very presence, the very activity, the very empowerment of Christ to us so that we are no longer slaves to sin. We've crucified that flesh with its passions and desires because we belong to Christ as the Spirit comes and empowers us to live new lives. Okay, that's just a sampling of Paul's understanding of union with Christ. Now, let's shift gears. Uh, it's a, it's a, a incredible what John has to say about this in the Gospel of John, union with Christ in John's Gospel. Now, I went through my New Testament and looked at every reference there was to anything that had to do with the I and you and you and me kind of language, right? That, you know, and, and just wrote, wrote them all down and stared at them for a long time. You know, just meditated on those passages and what they were saying. And it became clear to me as I did this that you can divide these teachings in John's Gospel into four categories that, that build, each one builds on the previous one. And the last one is a shocker. It really is amazing when, when we see this. So let me just walk through these four categories of teachings on, on the union that we have with Christ as John speaks of this, as, actually as Jesus speaks of this recorded in John's Gospel. The first one is the most basic one. This is, the, as it were, the platform for everything else. And this is the teaching in John's Gospel of the union of the Father and the Son in the life and work of the Son. How does the Son live the life he is called to live? How does he do the work that he accomplishes? And the answer is, as the Father dwells in him, as he dwells in the Father, that work is done, that word is proclaimed, that, that, uh, that life is lived as there is a union of the Son and the Father. L look with me at these passages. John 10, verses 37 and 38. Of course, now the context here, this is right after he has declared, I and the Father are one. Right? And they took up stones to stone him, and they, they consider that a blasphemous statement. So here he is explicating the way in which I and the Father are one. And, and he, so it's a very helpful statement. Verses 37 and 38. If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you don't believe me, believe the works, so that you may know and understand that, here it is, the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. You see it? He wants them to see that the way he does the works that he does, and we'll see from other passages, the way he speaks the word that he speaks. In other words, everything that he does, everything that he accomplishes in his life, that is not an overstatement. That, that's not you know, preacher's uh, permission for hyperbole, you know. This is exactly what we read in the New Testament. Everything that he said, everything that he did, is because the, the Father was directing everything that took place. And I don't think we should understand this in some sort of robotic, with some sort of robotic model. That somehow Jesus just, you know, the, the father indicates raise a right arm, he raises, you know, and, and, and so on. It is not that. It is rather, as we'll see when he, when he relates this to us, the vine and the branches. 
It is rather a relationship of such intimacy, drawing from the Father, the Father's mind, the Father's heart, the Father's character, the, the Father's truth and wisdom. And as he absorbs that, as he embraces that, he is filled with the Father. And as that truth and wisdom and character fills his life, everything he says is what the Father wants him to say. Everything he does is what the Father wants him to do. So indeed, he is so interconnected with the Father that the entirety of his work is as the Father had designed. You know, this isn't on your handout, but John 4.34, where the disciples had gone off to get food to eat, and Jesus was with the Samaritan woman. They returned, and they offered Jesus some food. And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know of. And they're kind of startled by that. I mean, there's no McDonald's nearby anywhere, you know, where he could have gotten something to eat. So he explains to them, my food is to do the will of, of my Father and to accomplish his work, the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. This is what sustains me. This is what I love. This is what, I, what nourishes me, this intimacy of relationship with the Father. So believe the works that I do that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. This relationship of interpenetration, of mutual uh, uh, relationship together, of intimacy and, and shared mind, heart, character, goal, aspiration, word, work. The, this, the whole of this is the shared experience of Father and Son by which Jesus carries out then the work of the Father, speaks the word of the Father. Likewise, John 14, here's another statement very similar to what we saw in John 10. John 14, 10 and 11. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative. I mean, isn't that incredible? I mean, honestly, I'll just tell you, I wish I could say that. I'm afraid I'm guilty of saying many, many, too, too many things on my own initiative. Jesus never did. Never. That is, again, that is not hyperbole. This is not an exaggerated statement. He never did. He always spoke exactly as the Father directed him. But again, it wasn't robotic. It was intimate relationship by which he was so in tune with the mind of the Father, the heart of the Father, the will of the Father, the, the, the word of the Father, the character of the Father, that he was so absorbed with the Father that everything that came from him represented the Father. It's incredible, isn't it? So again, let me read that again. Do you, do you not believe that I am in the Father, the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me. Uh, that's language we'll see in John 15, right? The Father abiding in me does his works. Incredible statement. So what work is this that is actually done? It's the work of the Father through the Son. As the Father's own 
mind, heart, character, all these things I keep talking about, right? So fill the Son that everything that comes out represents the Father. It's the work of the Father. It's the word of the Father. This is not of me, says Jesus. I'm dependent entirely upon the Father in me to do this work. Verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe on account of the works themselves. So here's where the miracles of Jesus confirm, huh, he couldn't do that unless he was from God. Well, how, how could that be? Well, the Father is in him. And of course, the Spirit isn't mentioned here, but we know that Jesus lived his life in the power of the Spirit. And so it must have been, just as, just as for us, I mentioned this a moment ago, just as for us, the presence of Jesus is mediated by the Spirit. I take it, for Jesus, the presence of the Father was mediated to him by the Spirit. So the Spirit was the, uh, the divine emissary, ambassador, as it were, from the Father, sent from the Father to the Son first. Remember in, on Pentecost, Acts 2.33, Peter says, Jesus, having been exalted to the right hand of the Father, having received from the Father the gift of the Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured forth which you, that which you both see and hear. So indeed, Jesus is first recipient of the Spirit from the Father. The gift of the Spirit first comes to the Son. So I take it the Spirit then works in the Son to enable the Son to think and feel and long for and do and carry out everything the Father has called him to in the power of the Spirit. Though not mentioned here, it, what's mentioned here is the direct relationship of Father and Son that he depends upon. But I take it in light of the whole of the teaching of Scripture, the Spirit is involved in that union of Son and Father. And then one other statement in John 16, 32, Behold, an hour is coming, and already has come, for you to be scattered each to your own home, and to leave, and to leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. I, I, I'm thinking right now of my sister Bonnie's story yesterday of this woman who, after becoming a Christian, and goes home alone, asks, does that mean I'm not really going home alone? Yes, among many other things, it means that. Yes, so I, I, I know I am not alone, says Jesus, even though you'll be scattered, even though I'll stand, I'll stand by myself in this. The Father is with me. Okay, so the first category of these teachings in John's Gospel is the union of the Father and the Son in the life and the work of the Son. Here's the second one. Whoa! You ready for this? It's the union of the believer, that's us, with both Christ and the Father in the life and work of the believer. So you see the parallel here. Just as the Son carried out His work, through, through his union with the Father, so we carry out our work, we live our lives through union. Now here it is, with, with, with Christ and the Father, with the Father and Son, we are united. Here, so here are a couple passages on this. John 14, 19 to 24. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in the Father. Now, now, so far, that sounds just like what we've seen before. I am in the Father, so what you might expect to come next is, and the Father is in me. That's what you might expect. But surprise, look at what it is. 
so that you will know that in that day that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. Just meditate on that phrase. It, it just blows your mind away to contemplate what this is saying. Just as I have been in the Father, that relationship that has marked my life in ministry, by which I have accomplished all the work that I have, that I have done, that I have spoken all the things that I have spoken because of my life of intimacy with the Father, so now you will be intimately united with me and I with you. So it, it is this father-son relationship of inter, interrelatedness, of, of mutual reciprocity, of, of, of a dynamic oneness of mind and heart as the father communicates to the son everything the son is to know, everything the son is to speak, everything the son is to do. That intimacy of relationship of father and son now becomes ours as we are brought into union with Christ by which the same kind of reality that we saw in Christ and the Father is now ours. Let me keep reading now. Verse 21. <coughs> he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and will disclose, himself, disclose myself to him. So there you, you see it is just a tiny bit more is added to it. That is, at, as you in me, now, now receive, from, receive from me, this is Jesus to his disciples, as you in me receive from me my mind, my heart, you carry out my commandments, you, you, you do the work I give to you to do, my Father will see that. And he will love you. <laughs> I, I, I just can hardly even fathom what this is saying. The, the, the intimacy of the love of the Father toward those who are so dependent upon his Son. They draw his life. They draw his wisdom. They long to obey his commandments. And what's the Father's response to that? Oh, I love them. I love them. They're those children of mine who love my son, who obey my son, who, who are united with my son. Oh, I love them. Okay, let's keep reading. Let, let me read that last verse again. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So they love Christ. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? I mean, they are so confused by this that he has just been talking about, this is John 14. You remember at the beginning of John 14? I go to prepare a place for you, you know? So, I mean, this is the context of Jesus teaching them, I'm leaving. And they are stunned by this because they, their understanding is this is the Messiah. He's going to bring righteousness to the world. He, he's going to declare himself as king over all of the earth. He, he's, he's going to disclose himself to everyone. What, 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 is, what is he talking about that he's disclosing himself to them? He can't make sense of that. So Jesus answered Judas and he said to him, 
Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. There it is again. My father will love him and we, huh, father and son, will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me, I'm sorry, yes, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Isn't that last statement even amazing? I mean, so here's Jesus who's giving this teaching, but he wants them to know even right now as he's teaching them about their relationship to him and obeying him and, and following his commandments and demonstrating their love for him by obeying him. Uh, and, and the Father will love them because of that, that this very teaching that he's giving to them right now is not of his own. It's from the Father. So the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So even that very teaching itself continues to demonstrate his dependence upon the Father. It's the Father in him, in Jesus, by which he communicates this truth that if they obey him as he's obeyed the Father, if they love him the way he's loved the Father, then they will have the experience he has experienced of intimacy, of relationship, love from the Father, love from the Son, and the work done through them as has happened in Christ. Do you agree with me? This is just almost unbelievable. It is so glorious. You, you just, it's very difficult to wrap your mind around how, how beautiful, how incredible this is the, the privilege that is ours to be united with Christ in this way. Okay, John 15, this is the more familiar passage for most of us on this theme of union with Christ. Abide in me and I in you. So there's that interpenetration again <coughs> of mutual indwelling, as it were, of the believer in Christ. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I mean, doesn't this reflect exactly Jesus' relationship to the Father? How could he do the work that he was called to do unless he abided in the Father, unless it's the Father in him and he in the Father by which he carried out everything, everything that he did? We went to the very end, not my will but yours be done. You know, assenting to with, with, with whole heart going to the cross to fulfill the will of the Father. That very same reality, the way Jesus lived his life now, is the way we are to live our lives as we abide in Christ. We, we, we the branches, must draw life from that vine. That vine is the life source. It isn't in us. Let me say that again, just because I want you to hear this. The vine is the life source. It is not in us. So, I mean, when you preach, when, when, when you share the gospel, when, when you minister to another person, when you talk to your husband or wife, your kids, to do so in a manner that is honoring to the Lord and advancing of the kingdom and upbuilding to others, it is not of us. It is from the Lord. It is, it is as we abide in Christ, as we draw from him, his mind, his heart, his character reproduced in us, filling our lives, as, as then the overflow of that is Christ expressed. The fruit that is born is Christ's fruit. Abide in me and you bear much fruit. Okay, let me keep reading. 
I am the vine, you are the branches, he abides in you and I in him. He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do 25%. Right? <laughs> nothing. You can do nothing. No, nothing of eternal value. No, nothing that God would look at and commend. Nothing that will last forever. Apart from me. And then verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be made full. Do you want the maximally joyful life? Here it is. It doesn't get better than this. Period. This is the avenue of maximal joy, maximal fulfillment. The deepest sense of pleasure and satisfaction is found here in recognizing absolute dependence upon Christ and what he has to give me, which is reflected in obeying him, following him. I mean, isn't that amazing? Let, let me just camp for just one minute on verse 10 where he says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So let, let me just think, think about that with you for a moment. What is it, what's the relationship between keeping commandments of another and abiding in the love of that other? And abiding in the love of that other. Here, here's, here's the relationship. That other can love you, but if you don't keep the commandments of that person, then what's your attitude toward them? Well, what, what does lack of obedience indicate in terms of your relationship to them? Well, you, you, don't, you don't respect them. You don't believe them. You don't trust them. You, 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 you are not one with them, right? So to fail to obey to have a heart of disobedience is then a heart that is closed to that other person even if love is expressed from them to you. I mean, can you see this in, in, with kids? I mean, imagine just uh, hypothetical two brothers. Uh, I had two girls, so I can say this freely, right? Uh, two, two brothers. Uh, and, and one of those two brothers has an attitude toward his parents of respect, uh, gratefulness. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's a happy boy uh, and, and ha happy to obey the rules of the house and, and is, is basically just you know, with them and, and, uh, and, and pleased to be the son of these parents. Well, the parents can love that son and he can abide in the love of those parents because his heart is toward them. His heart is directed in, in warmth and respect toward them, right? So he can abide in the love of those parents. Whereas the other son in the family, for whatever reason, has a rebellious heart. He does not respect his parents. He does not appreciate the rules of the household. He, 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 he's defiant and just, just does not want to obey and gets away with all the stuff that he can. Now the parents may have honestly, genuinely, the same degree of love for him as they do to the obedient brother, son, but this disobedient son cannot abide in the love of his parents. Love given is not love received. Not by that son. 
So here, here is Jesus. How have, oh, how have I experienced the presence of the Father in my life? How have I experienced the joy of his fellowship every moment of my life? How have I abided in the love of my Father for me? Answer, as I have kept his commandments. So you, he says, keep my commandments and so abide in my love. Now this is a sweet truth, my friends, that I'm about to say that can be perverted easily. The sweet truth is this. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. So does he continue to love us when we disobey and sin? Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? We, we, we never can out-sin the love of God. We never can out-sin the grace of God. And it is a glorious, precious truth to every one of us in this room, starting with the guy on the stage who recognizes the depth of our own sin, to, to realize he never, ever quits loving us. However, our disobedience cuts off from us abiding in that love. And how tragic that is, not, not to live a life where we, where we feel and receive what the, in this case, what the Son has for us in, in a way that would match what the Son experienced with the Father as he keeps his commandments and abides in his love. So may, may we together work toward seeing the love of Christ manifest more fully in our lives, felt, received more fully in our lives as we obey him. As we obey him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Is that hard? But it is. It's not hard to understand. It's hard to live, isn't it? So may God help us with that. All right, moving ahead. Uh, third category of passages. We've seen in the first one, it's the union of the Father and the Son and the life and work of the Son. Then, amazingly, the second category, the union of the believer with both Christ and the Father in the life and work of the believer. Now, number three is this. This is another category of these passages, statements in John's Gospel. This is the union of believers with one another. Now we're talking about not, not vertical, union with God, but horizontal union with one another in ways that reflect gasp. <gasps> in ways that reflect the union of the Son with the Father. You talk about privilege. Incredible privilege God has given to us, his human creation to be reflectors, reflectors of the very character of God, and in this case, the relationships within the Trinity. It just doesn't get bigger than this in terms of privilege and responsibility to reflect this well. So here, here are a couple statements. John 17, 11, 
I am no longer in the world, of course, anticipating, about to leave. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you. He's praying to the Father. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name that you have given to me, that they may be one. Now, he could have put a period right there, right? That would have been fine, that they may be one. But look at the end of the sentence. Even as we are implied one. As we are one, so they, may they be one. This intimacy of shared life, uh, of, of commitment, of joy with each other. May they be one even as we are one. Also, John 17, 22, very similar statement <coughs> in his high priestly prayer. <coughs> The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. I take it the glory there, he, he means by that the, the, the truth and the, the mission and the message of all that he has come to, to do, bearing witness to what the Father gave him, he's brought to them. That's all wrapped up in that word glory. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. So twice we have in this prayer, this prayer of Jesus, that we would be one. Now, I don't know how much to make of the fact that he mentions it again, but I take it, it means this is something very important to him. To, make, to mention it twice in this high priestly prayer before his father, to say that they may be one even as we are, just as we are one, to reflect then the very character of the Trinity itself. So indeed, the oneship that we are to have with each other mirrors the oneship, the, 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 the unity of the Father and the Son together. Now the fourth category is just... Uh, astonishing. Here it is. He takes it to the final level. This is the union of believers with one another as they are in union with the Son and the Father. Now do you see the difference be between this one and number three? The third category is we are united with one another in a way that reflects the Trinity. But this one is even deeper, even more profound, even greater. This is the union of believers with one another because they are united together, together with the, the Son and the Father. So their union together happens only by their union with the Son and, and the Father. So John 17, 20, it should be to 26, instead of 21 at the beginning there, 20 to 26. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Now look at this. That they also may be in us. So do you see it there? This oneness, that they may be one, isn't, is not just a reflection of the Trinity. It's a oneness in the Trinity. Do you see the difference? It does reflect the Trinity, that's the previous point, but it's greater than that. It is a union that is, is a union that is comprised of, constituted by our unity with the Father and the Son. 
so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you've given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one, I am them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am so that they may see my glory that you have given me for you love me from the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you and these have known that you sent me and I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. So it's just a lot here to, to think about, but it is the main idea is this that our union with one another can only happen. It is not a humanly contrived union. This is not a social club. This is not some kind of human institution of commonality. This is a union with one another precisely because we are united with the Son and the Father. And, and the significance is this, that the only way we can be united together with one mind, one heart, one goal, one aspiration, one longing, the only way we can be united together in that way horizontally is because all of us in our horizontal union are vertically united with him from whom we draw his mind, his heart, his truth, his wisdom, his character, his mission, his longings become our longings of heart so that with one another, we with one voice, one heart, one mind, long for the very things he longs for, seek the very things he seeks for. So indeed, our union with him provides the basis then for true Christian unity, true Christian union at the horizontal level. Okay, some points of application. I'm sorry, uh, I meant to be done right now, but here, here they are. Uh, nature of the Trinitarian relations and working are very important to see here. We see in the workings of the Trinitarian persons a unity that is not unison and a distinction that is not discord. You know what? I think it would be better. I don't want to rob the seminar leaders of their times with people, and it is 1030, and that's what I'm supposed to, to be done here. So would it be better if I saved this and, and did this in tonight's session, just to pick up Mark with this? No, no. Oh, okay, okay. Okay, so, so the relations among the Trinitarian persons, just think, okay, stay with me then. If we're going to do this together, stay with me. Uh, the, wor the workings of the Trinitarian persons then, you see a unity that is not unison. You know what unison is, where we all sing the same notes. It's not that. But it, it is a distinction among the Trinitarian persons that is not discord. You know what discord is? Three three-year-olds sitting at the same piano bench. That's discord. Um, so it's, it's a distinction that is not discord. So what is a unity that is not unison and a distinction that is not discord? Harmony. That's what you see in the Trinity. Harmony. This beautiful interlacing of different parts that join together in melodic beauty to provide the fullness of, of, of the, the, the expression of Father, Son, and Spirit. And so that's what is to be reflected in the way we work together is a reflection of that Trinitarian harmony. 
as we work together. Celebrating our diversity, but a diversity in unity to same end, same goal, same truth, same wisdom. And of course, that all happens because we receive it from the Father through the Son. We are in sync with Him, and hence we are in sync with each other. It works that way. Second point, here is a union with the Son and the Father and an experience of the love of God and, and, uh, and love for one another, which only comes through obedience to Christ and his word and commandments. See again John 14, 2, John 15, 10, where it's so very clear that th this, is the, the, this unity is, an, is a unity that is grounded in our resolute longing to follow obediently in the ways of our master Jesus. More on that tonight. Kepler C. One of his greatest commandments expressed in these very same chapters that we've looked at together three times we find in, in John's gospel, Christ's disciples are called to love one another. In fact, in one passage, he says, I give to you a new commandment. Now, what's new about this, I think, is this new commandment to love one another, because you find that in the Old Testament. What's new? What's new is the way in which this is going to be worked out, more on this tomorrow night session, the way this is worked out with Jew and Gentile who used to hate each other, now in bonds of intimate love for one another. So he has in mind the implications of what it means to love one another when the body of Christ is not ethnic Jews, but Jews and Gentiles brought together in one body in Christ. It's radical love. Radical love is this love he's talking about. And this only happens because we have shared mind, shared heart. Again, the Trinitarian Union provides the basis for horizontal union and love for one another. Finally, capital letter D, only as we abide in Christ can we hope to see fruitfulness from our lives and ministries. John 15, 5, apart from, you, apart from me you can do nothing, is not an overstatement. Apart from abiding in Christ, we simply can do nothing of eternal value. So may our hearts be dependent upon drawing from the life of God in the soul of man that we may be filled with him and by that united together in common cause for the sake of Christ. May this be increasingly true. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this, after, this morning uh, for the privilege we've had of looking at things that we admit are far beyond our comprehension uh, to, to grasp fully. But, but what you have given to us astonishes us and, and makes us long to live our lives in ways that see this reality fulfilled in greater measure. Do this in us and among us for your glory and the advancement of your purposes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.